I'm Nareet Ben. This is Life Deconstructed. Intimate, open conversations with inspiring women from all different fields and backgrounds, how they got to where they are, the debates, decisions, and doubts along the way, and what success even means. Shama Mishtali was born and raised in Casablanca, Morocco, to Arab Muslim parents. But as a teenager, she discovered her dad's family secret, hidden even from her mom, his Jewish roots. It changed her life, setting her on a path of trying to understand her country's true history as well as her own. She's channeled it into incredible work aimed at healing rifts between Jews and Muslims. Now based in Dubai, she created the jewelry line Moors and Saints as a creative and unexpected way to do exactly that. In a raw, open exchange, she talks us through the path to understanding her identity, being censored in her own country, and her secret to having tough, uncomfortable, and perspective-changing conversations. Shama Mishtali, thank you so much for being here. It's so great to see you from Tel Aviv to Dubai. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start with your sort of origins. There's so much to talk about in the different things that you do, because you really have sort of dipped into so many different fields. And you talk about bridging gaps in your work, but you've managed to bridge sort of different areas that I think are somewhat unexpected to create this role for yourself or this life for yourself. Mm. But I think it seems like a lot of it is connected to your origins in Morocco growing up. And I confess, I have a personal like minor obsession with Morocco, because although I have no family history there. I was always interested in it. Went for the first time a few years ago for two weeks, and I think it was the best trip of my life. No exaggeration. So I'm particularly curious with what it was like growing up Mm. there in Casablanca. Tell me a little bit about it. Wow. I'm so glad you like it. Uh, We should go back together. Loved it. Loved it. So I grew up in Casablanca. My mother's from Tangier. My father's father is from Estavira, but my father grew up in Casablanca. So I kind of combined the north and the south and the middle of the country. And I grew up in that diversity, but I didn't quite understand what that meant. I knew that our last name was different. And so at some point in middle school, as I was going through my own kind of existential, philosophical, <laughs> contemplative moments and crisis, I started asking questions about our roots and where we came from and why we had a last name that was not common. Until then, it wasn't really talked about? It was kind of brushed over, but not really talked about. Mm -hmm. And um, my father took me to the side and said, well, your grandfather actually comes from a Jewish family. And my father said that he's kept that pretty much secret, even from my own mother. Wow. And yeah. And so we had to understand also the sociopolitical dynamics that shaped my parents here. So my mother, as I mentioned, grew up in Tangier, uh, was born in 1960. So she was very much shaped by Arab nationalists. Mm-hmm. My father, on the other hand, was born in 1948, out of all years. <laughs> And he was very much educated in the French sort of secular system of laïcité, right? Complete separation of religion and state and the educational system sort of pushed that ideology. And so when my parents got together, they came from very different ideologies and experiences. And the way they identified was completely different. With my father, he being uh, sort of a colonial subject, he aspired to be French. And my mother aspired more to be Arab because she was influenced by that ideology. 
And so growing up, it was quite chaotic. It was like conflict resolution every day. And I'm the youngest. <laughs> I uh, guess that answers the question of how you ended up in that direction. Huh? Absolutely. It's like bred into you from an early age. Absolutely. And there's so many other things that I think pushed me onto that path. But um, I think part of that is that my father, as I mentioned, grew up with a lot of really harsh experiences with colonialism. And so those stories, as he would tell them to me, really shaped me mm -hmm. and shaped my understanding of the socio-political elements that define the Moroccan experience and even with my mother. But I think that my mother didn't really share similar stories, um, was herself in a bit of a power struggle with my father, so didn't really share much. And um, quite recently, I ended up doing regression therapy. And what came up from my mother's side in terms of colonial conflicts and stories was even more scarring than what I had been exposed to through my father. Wow. And it's interesting what you say about your dad, that at one hand, he had all these it sounds like traumatic experiences or I don't know if traumatic is the right word, but but these rough experiences with colonialism and at the same time still aspiring to be French, which I know is the case for many Moroccans. Definitely. I think it's very similar to codependent relationships, you know, in the sense that it's very abusive, but you feel that you're nothing without it. Right. And you want to stay in it because it gives you a sense of identity. And because colonialism thrives on the erasure of the history of the colonized, you do feel like you would be lost without that identity. And so, yeah, that was kind of my experience growing up. I was exposed to many different layers of identity. And yet, when I went to school, they were pushing this idea that we were just Arab and Muslim, and that's it. Right. My mother, on the other hand, grew up in the 60s and the 70s, where already the depiction of the Jew was shaping up to look very different than what my father had experienced. You know, my father had very, very intimate relationships with Jewish people. So his breastfeeding mother was Jewish. His first love was Jewish. His first doctor, his first nurse, yeah. all of these experiences. And my mother only saw the Jews as others, as enemies, potentially, and also with another uh, socioeconomic lens, right? There was another division or divisive element because my mother growing up in Tangier as a child used to notice these Jewish kids going to school and looking better, you know, dressed better, had more resources, had lunchtime, had their lunches packed in these cute little bags. Mm -hmm. And that was because of an organization called l'Alliance Israelite Universelle that catered to Jewish communities in Arab lands. Yeah. But I, I do want to say, though, for people who aren't so familiar with it, which would be totally natural about the Jewish experience in Morocco that you can obviously speak to infinitely more than me. But whereas you had mass expulsions of Jews from so many countries in North Africa already in the you know 40s and, and 50s, Morocco has this complicated history because it at once has a sort of friendlier history with its Jews than those other countries. Like you said, your dad encountered so many different Jewish people along his path but also a complicated one. I mean, I remember even from my trip where I ended up 
going to cemeteries in Fez, in Marrakesh, uh, and a couple of other places. It sounds a little morbid. <laughs> I swear I didn't do a cemetery tour, but I did see them. And, yeah. you know, you'd go and there'd be a cemetery, all Jewish cemeteries with tens of thousands of graves. And then you ask the person who works there, so how many Jews live here today? And he's like, oh, with five, 10 people. Yeah. So for your dad, tell me a bit more about that moment where he tells you that he has some Jewish lineage. I mean, what that was for you Mm. you know, growing up in Morocco and suddenly discovering this new part of your identity that, as you said, it was even hard for him to reveal to your mom because of, I guess, fear? Is it shame? Yeah. To connect that with what you said, I mean, yes, it sounds morbid, but that's the reality. You know, we had hundreds of thousands of Jewish people living in Morocco up until the 50s and the 60s. And then we started to witness sort of a mass exodus, people going into Europe, uh, North America, South America, but also Israel especially people from rural communities and mountainous regions who were already so marginalized and so discriminated against and not properly catered to. And so, as you mentioned, it's normal to only see few people in small towns. And we have a little over 2,000 Jewish people living currently in Morocco. But that wasn't the experience of my father. So for me, growing up in a different generation and not finding around me, similar stories to what my father was telling me about this deep, intimate relationships. I just thought, well, what happened here, right? So we need to understand this history and how did our identity shape up to almost be based on the otherization of the Jew. And so when I started asking my father, I thought, well, hold on. First of all, what? what is going on? Yeah, wait, what? <laughs> because especially when you grew up in Morocco and anywhere in the Arabic speaking world over the last 70 years, especially post 67, and you're in the, in the news and in journalism, there wasn't one news segment that didn't feature a story about the abuse of Palestinians and how that was a Muslim and an Arab issue. And so all we knew about the Jewish person is Zionism and is the occupation and is the conflict. Yeah. And so I said, wait a minute, how come these people are part of our blood and our heritage? Well, we have some things to talk about here. And so I started to almost decolonize my own understanding of our history and of our identity as a family and as a community. And I took those things to painting, to the canvas. And as I did that, you know, my mother used to sit right next to me. And little by little, I started to almost expose her to this new history that she hadn't been exposed to. And I would allow her to ask questions. What was her reaction to that? I should say your paintings are beautiful. I, I know you. some of them are on your Instagram, on one of your profiles. Really incredible. Oh, thank you. Very rich, not only in color and texture, but also you can see there's a story behind it. So it's interesting to hear that that's where it comes from, because that's quite a story to have behind that. Thank you. Is painting something that was always there for you? Because this is sort of the beginning of how it seems to me of blending arts, of taking mm. this creative world that ends up also going to jewelry and blending it with something that you wouldn't necessarily think it naturally would go with, like international relations, like conflict resolution, yeah. you know, like history, all of that. Absolutely. Um, it was kind of a natural progression. I had always painted, I would draw for hours, but the pivotal moment really happened when I started 
taking those existential questions and questions about our identity and history into school. And I went to a private Moroccan middle school and then a public high school. And that's really in the public high school where I saw very strong reactions to my questions and teachers used to penalize me and punish me for those questions. And so I thought I have... Like a how how dare you ask this? This is something we don't talk about kind of a thing? Yeah, but also like subtract from my grades, from test grades wow. and overall grades under the premise that I was stirring up conflict, that I was using colonial strategies to divide between the Amazigh and the Arabs of Morocco and just wow. really massive accusations and, and allegations that a high school student could not be doing. Right. And so. Right. But I guess that's the ultimate sign that you're on to something. If in the public school where I presume there's a government curriculum. Correct. They start saying stop here. Yes. It was upsetting people. And so I thought, well, I still need for people to see this history. I need it to be accessible. So I'm going to find a medium that enables this kind of decolonization process that I went through for others. And so that's how I transitioned. And I started painting things that were really political and got me into a lot of trouble. <laughs> I, before we jump to your studies, you mentioned studying international relations at Brandeis and then how you formed Moors and Saints and everything. I got to hear about that moment or moments when you're showing these paintings to your mom and kind of having this dialogue, what was her reaction? I mean, did she slowly open up to this notion, something that she never even knew about that then is being exposed in a way through her daughter? Yeah, the key word was slowly. <laughs> Initially, my mom said, no, 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 no. Don't get this idea into your head. This is impossible. It could not have happened. Please, let's not talk about this <laughs> ever again. But she. She is herself someone who appreciates art and creativity. And so she would sit next to me as I paint. And I think because it was through painting, so it's very um, non-combative. Yeah. And it almost sets up a safe space for her to ask questions. Painting in itself is healing. So it was healing for me, but also for her to sit next to me and ask these questions. And she would say, what's the story of this woman and why are you using these characters? And so I would tell her about Hebrew and I would tell her about the stories of a Jewish queen that resisted the um, Umayyad invasion of North Africa and fought that battle for 20 years. And I would tell her stories about Jewish Moroccan music and all these giants of Moroccan culture that contributed so much and yet weren't receiving much recognition for those contributions. And so very slowly, she started to understand that what she had been taught wasn't the full picture. Right. And then fast forward to the summer after freshman year, I got a grant to do some research. And so I took my mom with me to the south of Morocco, and we went kind of village hopping to really trace and understand the impact of the Jewish community on Amazigh villages in the South. And we were going on this tour and interviewing people, and it was 45 degrees. This oh is the God. middle of the summer in Morocco, and I am dying. <laughs> 45 degrees Celsius, we should say, which is insane. Exactly. I start getting kind of distracted by the fatigue and the exhaustion, and I turn and I see my mom literally writing down every single thing 
that came out of our guides and the people we were interviewing with and just noting down everything and asking questions and taking pictures. And in that moment, it was like this magical transformation that I'd witnessed in my mother. Wow. And so I believed that if that could happen to my mother, who's very stubborn, <laughs> I thought this can happen with anyone else. Right. You can convince other people to open their minds and ask questions and start to find out things that weren't part of their original picture. Yes. And slowly start to deconstruct the other and who the other is and what I might have in common with the person I label the other. I mean, is a point that is so super relevant now. It just reminds me of even the modern day United States, because it's so radically different than your experience. I mean, nothing in common in terms of the Moroccan, that deep, complex, layered experience. Yet at the same time, the whole concept of otherism and being willing to find out about the other and find things in common is something that is a real big issue these days. And absolutely, everyone can benefit from that. I absolutely agree. And the research all points out to the fact that you can't actually have any social transformation with anyone unless you're willing to enter into a relationship with them and you form this bond. You know, the reason why my mother had to transform her own beliefs was because she's my mother. So she had to understand and sit through what I was saying. But I also did it in ways that are very diplomatic. Yeah, she couldn't just like unfollow you on Twitter and say, (laughs) I'm not interested in that, in that perspective. Exactly. Or in that other. Exactly. But even with people whom we just know as acquaintances, I encourage people to go and form friendships because they would enable you to see the world from a whole completely new perspective. Just go to people with from a place of curiosity and ask questions if you don't understand something about their culture. And you'll be surprised at how much in common you have with them. It's only in this context of people initiating goodwill and really trying to form a bond and a relationship that you can convince someone of your own political and social and cultural beliefs. Yeah. And that is also another thing that is harder to come by and that people forget now. Again, I'll come back to Twitter, but, you know, Instagram, whatever it is you want. But the proliferation of really surface relationships of acquaintances is probably an overstatement for what a lot of people have and and the sort of norm and coupled with this I think fear of asking the wrong question of being perceived as ignorant or racist or whatever it is even when it comes out of a genuine desire to learn but there's a fear around maybe I can't ask because it will be perceived the wrong way and then nobody really learns anything and nobody has those conversations that you're talking about. Totally. I do want to jump then to your studies briefly because it seems, I guess, obvious, but not everybody jumps into their undergrad, never mind at 17, with a clear idea of what it is they want to do. I also studied international relations at NYU, moved there when I was 17. For me, it was just kind of something that I felt drawn to for for many reasons that I won't get into now. But was that for you a clear straight line from growing up that this is what you want to study and do? So I wouldn't say it was a clear path. So I went to a public Moroccan high school, which meant that I only had two hours of English per week. And even in those two hours, it was quite repetitive. So every single time it was like, A, like apple, B, like banana. You learned about a lot of fruit. (laughs) Absolutely. And so I turned 17, I got the baccalaureate and then I took a gap year because I knew I wanted to study international relations. And that was not a thing back in Morocco at the time. It was something you get into as a postgraduate, so not an undergrad. And so 
I took a gap year. And for those first six months, I went and stayed with my sister in Harvard Square. She was living there at the time. And I just went to the library every single day and studied all of the SAT words. Oh, my God. It was insane. I've never heard of anybody studying the SAT words voluntarily. So bravo for that. (laughs) (laughs) Really? That's like every American's nightmare. (laughs) Absolutely. But I knew that I wanted to be in a very multicultural environment. Right. And I was drawn to American education and to being in the U.S., not just for the multiculturalism, but for what I had perceived as this sense of freedom. And I was always attracted to inner freedom and outer freedom. As I mentioned, I got into existentialism in middle school. Mm-hmm. And so it was all about absolute freedom and what that means and really questioning everything that we are taught and looking at values and forming your identity from a place of questioning first, really, and looking at maintaining these values by this constant vow. I will always dictate who I am by being that person, not because I was fed a certain ideology. And so the U.S. was really attractive because the United States of America is in many ways a celebration of freedom and liberty and justice. I mean, the way it has showed up repeatedly, especially in regards to how uh, marginalized communities and African-Americans and Native Americans are treated is different. But there is this kind of almost subliminal messaging for this expansive freedom that you can only attain in America. Right. And so I knew I wanted to be in that environment. And so So when you actually, though, got there and started living there, I mean, that's a big ideal to live up to. Did it meet your expectations? Oh, God. I feel by your expression, which unfortunately (laughs) our listeners can't see, says that that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) Yes, 100%. Um, there were a lot of nuances. And I think that was helpful because then it allowed me to even look at my culture more critically and to accept the flaws, you know, to accept the criticism, to accept that if something is not working well, there's always room for reform. It doesn't mean we have to just shut it down completely. We can celebrate the things that work and amplify those things, Mm -hmm. but still remain critical of the things that don't work. And I can connect this to what I do through Moors and Saints, but it really is something that I believe in. We have to be objective in celebrating our achievements in the past and in the present. We have to reflect on those moments of history in which we really thrived together. And, you know, Moors and Saints was born out of this need and want that I had to make this coexistence and the sort of collaborative living between Jews, Muslims, and Christians that happened in Andalusia to make that cool again, you know, to bring it back to the modern times. Yeah, in a way that can translate to people today. So this is a jewelry line. How did you even get to this? Did it begin for you with the creative and the art again? Or was it starting with, you know, a desire to bridge those gaps? And then that was your way into the art? So it was totally out of need again to be diplomatic and to exist in spaces that didn't really allow those hard discussions to be had. Mm. And so I had actually gotten married and moved to Dubai and I was in what we would call a very abusive relationship in which all of these ideas that I've held 
super strongly since I was really young about freedom and authenticity would come to be tested in this relationship. And I had moved to Dubai, this is five years ago, so there was no foresight into the normalization and rapprochement that would eventually happen with Israel. And I was told that I couldn't do my work, that I couldn't speak about my Jewish grandfather, that I couldn't show my paintings. Told by who? And you tried to get stuff out there? So mainly actually by the person that I was married to. And he made it seem like if I had done that, it would be complete social suicide and it would put us in danger, but also really put him sort of in danger of social outcasting and possibly deportation. Was he, if I might ask, was he local there? Was he from the UAE? No, he was not. He had grown up in the Gulf region, but he was not. Mm -hmm. He was actually from East Africa. Mm -hmm. And um, what an interesting sort of repetition in a way. I don't know if this is like there's an expression in Hebrew um, psychology for one cent, basically. (laughs) It just makes me think of your parents, not in terms of abuse, but in terms of the sort of we have to push this stuff aside. We can't talk about it. We have to eliminate that part of an identity. Yeah. And that is something that I had to learn the hard way. (laughs) Um, And so as I was saying, I was pushed into this by necessity because I moved here and I was made to believe that there's no way I could talk about those things. There's no way I could continue my artwork. So I thought about avenues through which I can really continue my mission, which I believed since middle school was to put Jews and Muslims together in similar spaces and have them actually look at each other in the eyes and recognize the vast shared heritage that spans thousands of years and that they have in common and that made them who they are and that made their cultures so much stronger. And so I thought, okay, well, what language will translate really well with the local community? And as you know, Dubai is known for luxury goods and for the glamour. And so I thought I'm going to use jewelry because whomever comes into my event will pick up the jewelry and it will allow them this moment to fall in love. And then I can come in and start like with your mom and say, well, funny, you should ask. (laughs) Exactly. It's funny. You should ask why there is a Star of David on this bracelet, because actually it's inspired by the crenellations of a mosque that was built a thousand years ago, which we know as Al-Azhar Mosque, so one of the most central and essential and sacred spaces of Islam today. But on the courtyard and on the crenellations of the mosque, there are so many stars of David. So that allows me to talk about how come that was a thing a thousand years ago and what kind of cultural exchange happened under the Fatimid dynasty, who was Shia ruling over Sunni majority at the time. And in order to stay in power, they had to forge very strong relationships with the minorities of the land, so Coptic Christians and Jews, and they put them in high influential positions of power in the royal courts, in finance and architecture. So we see their imprint physically. So I wanted to connect people with this heritage through something physical, through an example of that material heritage that they can look at and carry. Right. What a beautiful way in to that. And what a beautiful extension of what you did growing up of those paintings. And I want to pause here for a second to zoom in on 
the building of it, because what's so important to me in these conversations is not just, you know, okay, great. You have a jewelry line, you created this and then what's next, but how did you actually do that? And here also there's a little bit of overlap and interest on my end, because I also, I started a jewelry line maybe eight or nine years ago that I did all myself out of an obsession, both with jewelry and with design and also with my own sort of version of trying to blend different influences and languages and things that had become part of me. And I'm fascinated with how you got this off the ground. So you decide, you know, these are the kinds of designs I want to do. How do you make it a reality? It's so funny you should ask that because I had no clear support network. You know, I was new in this country. I didn't have any family here, any friends, especially by virtue of the kind of abuse that I was undergoing at the time. But I just thought, you know what, this has to happen. You know, someone with that much of a unique story and background to be all of a sudden in the goal. I just thought there must be some kind of reason why I'm here. And so I went into the Gold Souk area of Dubai and started knocking on doors of workshops and factories. And it was a very, I mean, it still is a very male, South Asian dominated area and space. And so I didn't have the language. I don't speak Hindi or Urdu. And I didn't have any references or people that were pointed out to me. I just walked in and said, hey, I have this vision and this plan. Would you be able to make these designs happen for me? And so I had to go into this testing phase for about two years to really perfect the products and to find out what works and what doesn't, because I knew that if I were to make a business happen and to bring my idea to life, I wanted to do it in a way that's ethical. And obviously jewelry is not the most ethical industry out there. Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to do it in a way that makes jewelry attainable, fine jewelry attainable and more democratic. Right. And essentially, I was bringing all of the social justice values and leftist values that I learned from Brandeis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's like the full package, Brandeis. Exactly, to, to jewelry. So now this is what brings us to when I officially launched <laughs> the company. Right, like what happens when you try to communicate this to the world and how do you actually do that? Because like you were saying, you're not coming in as a super connected person and obviously you were coming also out of a difficult situation. Yeah. So how do you say, this is how I'm going to launch this, <laughs> this business? So um, it's all about positioning and I launched the business officially during the year of tolerance because I thought, oh my God, this is great. I am given the right platform and this is the right moment yeah. to actually use this message and amplify this message. And so I launched during a design fair called Downtown Design. And it's one of the biggest in the region. And in that first week, I had a lot of really positive reactions. There are two times when someone came in and they almost had like a visceral reaction to the Stars of David. Wow. And in both instances, they were Palestinian. And they said, what is this doing here? <laughs> Basically, there was no diplomacy there involved. They just... Yeah. What do you do with that then? They had a lot of anger and they felt almost betrayed. And this is what I live for because, you know, my core 
and hide as a coffee solution. Yeah, and put so, your money where your mouth is. <laughs> exactly, and social transformation. And so in both instances, I just said, I hear you. Thank you for asking this question. Really, I am so glad that you brought this up. Mm-hmm. And then I say, well, are you willing to listen to what I have to say about why I created this design? And so immediately I had visuals ready. So I pull out pictures of Al-Azhar Mosque, of the crenellations, of the courtyard. And I say, this was sourced from a mosque that is central to the Muslim religion and Muslim culture. And it was built a thousand years ago. So by reclaiming this heritage, what I'm essentially saying is that we have a lot in common with Jewish communities especially from what we call Arab lands or Arabic speaking territory. And so in both those instances, you could just slowly start to see this sort of... Letting the guard down in a way? Dismantling, really. You know, dismantling of this massive wall Mm -hmm. of othering that these people had built up over the years. And so I explained to them the history and everything. And they said, oh, my God, we would have never known. Yeah. There was no way that we would have come across anything like this. And so those are really the moments that I live for. Yeah. And then some of the feedback that I started to receive was so interesting. So I started receiving messages from Emiratis that were saying, oh, my God, that collection, the Cairo collection is so brave. I had a message from an Emirati man who called it the Enlightened Audacity Collection. Wow, (laughs) that's quite a name. I think that's pretty good. And that's also something that gave me energy to continue because I felt that a lot of people were ready to have those conversations, but they were just kind of waiting for the right avenue to do it. Yeah. So yeah, it gave me a lot of hope. Well, it must be such an experience for you now then with these new normalization agreements over the last several months that suddenly there's this massive tourism between Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Israel and Morocco. Also, things are softening up and, you know, normalization happening and shifting so quickly. I mean, very different than the peace between Israel and Jordan or Israel and Egypt, which is decades old, but has always been kind of cold. And you have the sudden like very warm relationships almost overnight, because in many ways they were already happening under the surface in hush hush. Mm. So what has that been like for you to sort of have been ahead of the curve in a way? And now you have this new wave of desire for coexistence happening. It's so interesting because that it reminds me of my own stories when I started doing exhibitions in Morocco specifically and getting a lot of heat from the authorities and from different organizations that even the ones that are dedicated to interfaith dialogue, you know, even the ones that were supposed to be championing those discussions and healing and conflict resolution would seek me for exhibitions and then on the last day cancel and retrieve their commitment. Or um, there was the one time when my work was severely censored and it was censored before but this one time was really tough because i had gotten all of the approvals lined up from the government from the municipality of casablanca and then on the day of i receive a call from the ministry of interior affairs and they say there is no way we're going to let you have your exhibition and i'm like the works are already on the walls you know we are ready to go what was their stated reason did they give you a reason or they just said it's not going to happen 
So they had just said, too many stars of David, too much Hebrew. <laughs> they said, you can keep the work that don't have these things. And I was like, that's all of my work. That's kind of not the point. <laughs> <laughs> and so I received this call right as I was on my way to a radio show. And it was a 12 o'clock radio show that was live. Oh, perfect. So I walked into this. <laughs> you got a microphone there. <laughs> I walk into the space and they say, how come you've never done a solo exhibition in Morocco when you've had so many in the US and in Europe? And I said, well, because every time I try, there's someone who tries to censor me. And this was live. And the journalist was like, oh my God, what did she just drop? <laughs> and they couldn't edit it or anything. I just went on and on and I called people by name. And I said, this person, this person are trying to censor me. And they're coming from the Ministry of Interior Affairs. Wow. Even though that I've, takes a lot of bravery. Were you concerned at all about the repercussions or was it just kind of... Um, you have to understand that this is kind of beyond me. And I've always felt this way. So in those moments, it's existential. You know, it's I have to do this. Yeah. And I'll think about the implications later. <laughs> and so in that moment, I just kind of called people out and they couldn't censor the show. And that gave me enough leverage to actually negotiate for most of the paintings to stay on the display and to keep the exhibition going. But they ordered me to take down the Moroccan flag revisited painting, which you see behind me here. Like, yeah. I'm never going to ever separate from this painting. It's brilliant. It's the Moroccan flag with the Star of David in the middle. Yes. So it's the Moroccan flag with the Star of David and all of the three uh, main languages that have shaped our culture. So there is Arabic and Hebrew and Tifinagh, the language of the Amazigh indigenous people of North Africa. And it has some symbolism from Amazigh culture within the Star of David, because it's essential to me to talk about the indigenous part of Jewish culture in North Africa and how it spans at least three thousands of years. Moroccan Jewry is not just something that came to us from Andalusia and from Sephardic communities settling in the north, but it's really deeply rooted. Right. It, it goes much farther back. Absolutely. So that's on one sort of side of the story. It's that there are many of us who have been doing this work. For me, in my case, I've been doing this work for about 14 years. And there are many newcomers now with this new rapprochement. And that's not a bad thing. What I worry Is about... Is it frustrating, though? Is it frustrating from the perspective of someone who's sort of been there in the trenches, so to speak, for a while? Um, it's frustrating when it's used as an agenda to push for certain economic interests, yeah. but fails to recognize that this is really deep, intense, taxing work that you can't just do overnight. I mean, we've had over seven years of complete brainwashing on both sides. And so we have to sit down together and actually look at how we can build meaningful relationships, how we can trust one another, how we can humanize one another, and we have to create the kinds of institutions and civil society organizations that could take this work long term, you know, that would put the necessary frameworks to ensure that if, you know, 10 years from now, a new political regime or structure comes in and decides that they want to differentiate themselves from 
the ones that came before, right. that this would be work that doesn't get threatened. And Big economic deals are easy to undo, but when you have a deeper level communication or understanding or social institutions like you're talking about, that's harder to undo overnight and say, never mind. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're each going back into our corners. So where do you see yourself sort of from here on out? I have a complicated relationship with this question because I personally hate the what's in your future and what are you going to do next and what's your five-year plan? Probably because I've never had a five-year plan and that freaks me out. Um, But, you know. This is exactly why we studied international relations. Right? We wanted enough flexibility. A little bit of everything. Around. Yeah. yeah, that sounds good. A little bit of that in this. Now, though, because it does seem so aligned with the work you've been doing, where do you see it going for you? Yeah. You know, going forward. So especially because of this last point that I mentioned, I really want to reach as many people as possible in the Gulf, the Middle East, uh, North Africa region, in Israel as well, and to make sure that this relationship building kind of goes beyond the economic plans. And so that is also why I really want to scale up Moors and Saints, hopefully receive funding either through grants or through VC to continue this work because it is all rooted in social impacts and social transformation. And so I see um, the mission and the work of Moors and Saints and everything that comes out of it, because in a sense, it is kind of an extension of me. So it's things that come out of me to really um, expand across the region and to touch as many people as possible and to involve more elements of storytelling. Because right now I'm using jewelry as the medium, but it was never intended to just be about jewelry. And one avenue that I'm contemplating is children's books and children's stories and oh, that's really great. digging through this immense history of shared heritage that we have and looking at strong feminist Jewish characters that came out of North Africa or strong Jewish anti-colonial activists that came out of Egypt, you know, that yeah. are never talked about. And really looking at all of the bridging stories, I like to call them bridging stories, that I can find throughout our history and to amplify those. And I'm not trying to glamorize our history. I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture. But what I'm trying to do is look at those moments in history in which we thrived together and created something larger than all of us and really transformed cultures, transformed languages because of that collaboration. Hebrew poetry, for example, went through its golden age in Andalusia out of that coexistence and cohabitation with the Arabic language. So I just want us to be able to reclaim those really important stories of coexistence and what came out of them for the modern day and to use those stories as hope and inspiration for where we're going next, to use them almost as inspiration for how we can innovate even more together. Well, you said earlier that it's all about positioning, and I think you're certainly very, very well positioned given all the work you've done for the last decade plus to launch it to a whole new level now that the atmosphere around is also changing and there's just more built-in openness. Of course, not everywhere, but in the countries that you're dealing with primarily, you know, there's still a long way to go. And in other countries that did once have such a close relationship and hundreds of thousands of Jews like Iraq and Iran, but That's also a whole other conversation. Yeah. Shama, before I let you go, I just want to ask you about one other thing that is sort of a different subject, but maybe it's not depending on, you know, your take on it. But 
I saw something you wrote uh, on your Instagram about leaning into sisterhood. And that kind of piqued my interest because I think, you know, female friendships are so important in so many women's lives. But it's also something that can be complicated, that cannot always come easily. And I think the older we get when we're not in these sort of clear structures like school or university or whatever it is, it can be harder to find and develop those relationships a lot of times, especially moving to somewhere new. I imagine like you did with Dubai or I've done a few times in my life as well. So what is that about for you? How do you lean into sisterhood? Oh, my goodness. That's such a juicy and great question. So uh, (laughs) let me preface this by the fact that I identify as a radical intersectional feminist. And what this means is that I believe that all systems of oppression are not only interconnected, but in order to dismantle one, we have to work on dismantling the others. And it's absolutely necessary for the emancipation and liberation and freedom of all people to work on all fronts at the same time. And this is something that I bring into my business, into my artwork, into everything that I do and every interaction that I have. And so leaning into sisterhood, in a sense for me, is leaning into this philosophy, leaning into this kind of code of conduct. And so when you approach your relationships with women and men, you approach them with this in mind. And you try to create connections that amplify and support and address the needs of others rather than minimize and shrink and reduce from the grievances of people. So we're not competing against one another and, you know, going through oppression Olympics, as many people say, but really making everyone feel heard and, and opening up a sacred space almost and a safe space for people to um, be able to authentically say what their needs and grievances are. For me, this is really important as well because I believe in peace building to my core. And I think that women are naturally born with an innate ability to uh, build peace, to nurture care, and to create bridges. And it is in many ways a very feminine, restorative healing energy. And I think that Part of our biggest issues in the world right now is that we have been suppressing this feminine energy in all of us, you know, in us as women, in the men, especially in men in positions of power. I mean, there is no connection with feminine energy there or barely any, which ends up hurting the world and exacerbating the existing systems of oppression. So leaning into sisterhood means really um, weaving a global network of meaningful relationships with women across the world from all walks of life, all backgrounds that have suffered in different ways. I'm not in the business of minimizing someone's pain, but really just telling them or allowing them to see that we have to work together in order to overcome the challenges that have been hindering us. And that's again, applicable to so many things. Wow. Well, I could keep going with you for a really long time, but I know that at some point we have to wrap. So maybe we're going to have to do a part two to pick up on all those little points that are (laughs) a whole other story altogether. Sounds good. And we'll have to set up our day for me to practice Hebrew and for you to practice Arabic. Yes. I think that's a natural extension also of what you're doing. I feel like that works. And judging by how far you've come from studying SAT words in the library, (laughs) I think, you know, I think you're going to go really far, really fast. I'm not sure if I can do the same with Arabic, but 
I'll do my best. But <laughs> I can't hope. say shukran. Aww. Shukran and toda and merci for, for taking the time. You do incredible work. And, uh, and I'm excited to see where it goes next because it's just the beginning. You've done so much already. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. I appreciate this conversation so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts and send us your thoughts, any questions you want answered or women you want to hear from on Twitter at Nareet Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. Coming up next week, veteran brand and marketing strategist Michelle Morgan on resisting the pressure to stay in pre-med, building relationships that can change your career, and the path to finally putting aside what she was always expected to look like at the office. I'm still learning to really fully embrace it. There are days where I feel like I don't like the way I look or I don't feel as pretty as I want to, but it's definitely gotten better. And it really makes me feel less pressure when I talk to people virtually because I don't have that self-conscious feeling right now. But like it did take some time to kind of reveal it on a meeting call with just a few of my coworkers and then work my way up to client meetings in larger meetings with everybody. Thanks as always to our super producer Talia Golihov. I'm Narit Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.